Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we introduced you to Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic II, the Sith Lords. Witnessed the end of the Mandalorian Wars and some wounds in the Force at Malachor V, and discussed the beginning of the poorly named Jedi Civil War. Now, in Episode 23, we start a new game in Knights of the Old Republic, get a really bad haircut, and meet our new bunkmate on the Endar Spire. Welcome, make yourselves comfortable, we're going to be here for a bit. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Programming note, before we get to the story, we have a couple of updates on the format of the show going forward. Until now, every story we've covered has been on the short Every story we've covered has been on the short side, either coming from a comic or a short story. The two Knights of the All Republic games, however, each require between 20 to 60 hours of playtime to finish, depending on how much of a completionist you are. The restored content mod for Knights of the All Republic 2 adds another 20 to 30 hours and fixes many of the issues caused by the game's forced early release date. However, it's not simply the length that necessitates changes, it's also the legacy these two stories left behind. For most Star Wars fans, these two games are the only part of the Old Republic they've experienced. Further, Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2 are probably the most important and far-reaching stories in the entire expanded universe. We know that these two games are the biggest stories we will cover on the show, and if we have any hope of doing them the justice they deserve, we're going to have to change things up a little. Thus, we need to make a few quality of life changes, whereas we previously introduced all characters and locations at the beginning of each story, we will now confront them as they appear chronologically in the story. Additionally, as suggested by listener at I Don't Eat World, we're going to be doing more thorough backgrounds of the major players and main locations in Night Sealed Republic and Night Sealed Republic 2. We're not done with listener suggestions, though. We'll also take periodic breaks from the main story to discuss questions and topics the listeners have requested. For example, we're going to examine the Grey Jedi and Legends and Canon after we meet Jolie Bindo on Kashyyyk, as listener at Paul Kreider requested. If you have something you'd like to add, we're still taking suggestions, so pile them on via email or tweet. Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic. Developed by BioWare and released on July 15th, 2003. Written by Drew Karpissian and James Olin and directed by Casey Hudson. Meta. Uh, This is the beginning of a new story, and we would talk a lot about the meta details for Knights of the Old Republic, but we're going to do that. But we're going to get to that all during the narrative, and in some of those suggestions we talked about earlier. If you would like to know much more about the development of KOTOR before we we get there, check out Alex Kane's excellent book, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which chronicles the making of the classic RPG. Also, check out episode 11, where we interviewed Alex about his book. Timeline. The entirety of the main story of Knights of the Old Republic takes place in 3956 BBY, which is before the Battle of Yavin. However, along the way, we're going to flashback to many different years in the Old Republic timeline, including 5000 BBY, 3996, 3993, 3963, 3960, and many more. 
Then when we get to the Rakatan Infinite Empire, we're going to flash back so far into the past. We'll go to a time before 36,453 BBY, which is the earliest date in the Star Wars Legends publishing timeline. Of course, events happened before that date, but we'll discuss that when we get there. We will also flash forward and go to a few different years in the future. Uh, your too long didn't read version here. Main story is in 3956 and a bunch of time jumps, some to tens of thousands of years in the past. Spoiler warning. It feels strange saying this for a video game that's now old enough to drive a car. But this is your spoiler warning. If you haven't played Knights of the Old Republic or are waiting in case future Star Wars movies happen to do a strict adaptation of the game and you don't want the big reveal and other twists spoiled for you, Stop listening right now. There's nothing further. Let us begin. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, 4,000 years before the rise of the Galactic Empire, the Republic verges on collapse. Darth Malak, last surviving apprentice of the Dark Lord Revan, has unleashed an invincible Sith armada upon an unsuspecting galaxy. Crushing all resistance, Malak's war of conquest has left the Jedi Order scattered and vulnerable as countless knights fall in battle and many more swear allegiance to the new Sith Master. In the skies above the Outer Rim world of Terrace, a Jedi battle fleet engages the forces of Darth Malak in a desperate effort to halt the Sith's galactic domination. Panning down from the crawl, we see the city planet Terrace, and then, just like in A New Hope, we see the broadside of a Republic cruiser come into frame. Only it's not a CR-90 Corvette like the Tantive IV from A New Hope. Instead, it's a Hammerhead-class cruiser with a distinctive vertical nose fin. You know how you can tell Knights of the Old Republic is going to be great? The first thing you see is a shot-for-shot remake of the opening of A New Hope, but with a Hammerhead Corvette in place of Princess Leia's diplomatic cruiser. I don't know if this was... An intentional nod, but the similarities are uncanny down to the Hammerhead's design, which is actually quite similar to the CR-90. That Hammerhead cruiser, the Endar Spire, has just been pulled out of hyperspace by the interdictor field on Darth Malak's flagship, the Leviathan. As the Endar Spire is bombarded by hundreds of Sith starfighters, engine power fails and the ship is left defenseless, adrift in space. In fact, the only reason the Indar Spire hasn't been destroyed yet is because Malak wants the ship's commander, Jedi Knight Bastil Shan, kept al- or captured alive. To that end, a large Sith boarding party composed of Dark Jedi and Sith troopers embarks on the Indar Spire to apprehend Shan. As the heavily damaged Hammerhead cruiser drifts aimlessly down toward the Outer Rim World Terrace, klaxons sound throughout the Indar Spire. Within... A human male is awakened by the commotion and stumbles from his bed. An inauspicious start, to be sure, for one of the greatest Jedi ever to live. Character profile. Revan. How could we start with anyone else? Revan's is the first phase shown in the game, and even 16 years after his introduction, he's still the most popular Expanded Universe character. Well, that's probably a cop-out in the sense that Revan is a customizable player character. It's still true. We're going to use this character profile as an excuse to talk a little bit about how we have an official Legends continuity, Revan. We will discuss the canonical playthrough of Knights of the Republic after leaving Terrace. If you've played or are in any way familiar with Knights of the Republic, you're probably wondering how a canonical playthrough was pulled from a game designed to rely on player choice. 
The answer is a loose collection of data points from a dozen other sources released since 2003 tied together with info from the game. Perhaps unsurprisingly, even the basic facts of most of Revan's life are in question, but they do give us enough to go on. Even though the character profiles won't usually be this long, they will follow this format. For a time after Nuts of the Old Republic was released, there was no canonical Revan. Then, the new essential chronology established three big facts. Revan's gender as male, a light side ending for the game, and the destruction of the Starforge. In addition to the ending, a full light side playthrough has been implied from numerous references, including the Old Republic MMO, uh, the comic Shadows and Light, which we covered in episode 10, and even Knights of the Old Republic 2. Together, these seem to make it clear that Revan made light side choices when given the option. The novel Revan uh, made the game's relationship between uh, Revan and Bastila part of Legends continuity as well. Other details that depend on player choice have also been established, such as Tatooine being the first world Revan visited, and thus the first star map found after departing Tatooine. This was deduced from a StarWars.com article about great gunslingers in galactic history, which stated that Kalo Nord died on Tatooine. Nord, as you may recall, duels Revan on the first world where a star map is discovered. We'll discuss more about the canonical order in which the planets were visited in a couple of episodes. Finally, and most importantly, Lucasfilm official Leland Chi confirmed Revan's canonical face out of the 15 available when first creating a character. At Star Wars Celebration in 2012, Chi stated that Revan's official face is the 12th one down, otherwise known as the white guy with a mullet. That's right. The most powerful Jedi of his age was a business-in-the-front-party-in-the-back kind of guy. And just so you know how unimpeachable Chi's word is on these type of things, his job title uh, with Lucasfilm is Master of the Holocron. Uh, this appearance was further enshrined into, le- into the Legends timeline with Revan's appearance in the Old Republic MMO. If you're wondering how he makes flesh-and-blood appearances... In two games set about 300 years apart, we're sorry, that answer will take far too much time now, and we'll have to wait until we get to the novel Revan, which occurs after Knights of the Old Republic 2. So Revan was born as a light-skinned human male around 3994 BBY, and likely hailed from an Outer Rim system. Revan's birth name has never been revealed, so you're free to let the KOTOR name generator and your imagination run wild. After he was discovered to be Force-sensitive, young Revan joined the Jedi Order and spent time as a Padawan studying at the Coruscant Jedi Temple and the Dantooine Enclave. The future Revan met the future Malak, who went by his birth name Alec at that time, very early and the two quickly became best friends. During his studies, Revan had many masters, including Zar Lestin, Dorak, RNK, and Kraya. If Kraya is to be believed, and that's a big if, she was his first master. It may not matter, but uh, Knights of the Republic 2 companion but Disciple, a.k.a. Mikal, claimed that prior to the outbreak of the Mandalorian Wars, Revan approached his first master to learn how to best leave the Jedi Order. Of course, he didn't follow through with leaving the Order, at least not yet. Master Lustin would later say that Revan always maintained an insatiable thirst for knowledge, the same one that got the better of him on Malachor V. Indeed, Mikal claimed that, as a Padawan, Revan sought to study many unfamiliar Force techniques, including Force bonds. Sometime prior to 3964, 
both Revan and Alec were promoted to the rank of Jedi Knight. If you listen to our episodes on the Knights of the Old Republic comics, the next part uh, might seem very familiar. By mid-3964, Revan had already formed the Revanchist movement and gained many adherents, including his friend Alec and the Cathar Jedi Pharaoh. Each Revanchist Jedi also named Revan as their Jedi Master, and they became his apprentices. While this decision was highly unorthodox, it also appears to have been totally ceremonial in nature. The Revanchist Jedi believed the Order was failing the galaxy by allowing the horrors of the Mandalorian Wars to go unchecked in the Outer Rim. Republic Media picked up on this, and Revan soon became a, a media darling and was dubbed the Jedi's own crusader. Against the wishes of the Order, the Revanchist Jedi began a campaign to scout enemy lines in the Outer Rim. Thus, the Mullet Man and his followers first traveled to Terrace to recruit new members, but found that none of the Terrace Masters, including Lucian Dre, or their students were willing to join. After Terrace, the movement split up to investigate multiple rumors. Revan went to Onderon and Duxun to pursue claims of Mandalorian activity in the system, while his followers went to Surja to do the same. Unfortunately, the Mandalorians ambushed the Revanchist Jedi at Surja, capturing the entire group and taking them to Flashpoint Station to be tortured at the hands of Dr. Demigal. When we get our first chronological glimpse of Revan in late 3964, he's being chastised by the Jedi High Council at the Temple on Coruscant. In issue 9 of the Knights of the Republic comics, Revan appears with his face obscured by the hood from his Jedi robes. The human Jedi tried to plead his case, but the Council wouldn't hear it. They ordered Revan to rescue the Revanchist Jedi from Flashpoint and then cease meddling. Unbeknownst to both Revan and the High Council, Zane Carrick and Roland Dreyer freed the Revanchist Jedi hostages from Flashpoint, unwittingly completing Revan's task. In 3963, Revan made his next appearance in issue 15 as one of the many Jedi across the galaxy who experienced the Mandalorian nuking of Sirocco through the Force. In his final appearance before Nightseal Republic, we see the story of how Revan came by his trademark mask and name. On Cathar, the Revanchist Jedi were confronted by a group of Jedi Masters led by Vruk Lamar. The Masters demanded the group disperse, but at the last possible moment, Revan found a Mandalorian mask in the soil. As he lifted it, all the Jedi and Cathar experienced a simultaneous Force vision showing the Mandalorian commit genocide against 90% of the Cathar species on their homeworld in 3973. The human Jedi then donned the mask and took on the name Revan before vowing to avenge the Cathar. The Jedi Council couldn't ignore the genocide, and in late 3963, they reluctantly sanctioned Jedi involvement in the Mandalorian Wars on the side of the Republic. If you want to hear these events described in greater detail, check out episodes 13, 14, and 20. If you listen to episode 22, the next part will be familiar, but just bear with us. After the Revanchist Jedi joined the fight, the Republic's fortunes began to change for the better. For two years, the Republic had been on the defensive and was in very real danger of failing. However, in 3962, at the Battle of Duro, Revan, Malak, and Mitra Surik saved the day and put the Mandos to flight. For his leadership and popularity, Revan was named Supreme Commander of all Republic forces. From 3961 to 3960, the Republic went on the counteroffensive, regaining all, all its lost territory from the Mandalorians. In doing so, Revan used a number of moral shortcuts to win battles, often sacrificing civilians or entire worlds to win. 
uh, it was during the counteroffensive that Revan and Malik discovered the star forward, the star map on Dantooine, and Revan began to fall to the dark side after visiting Korriban and Malachor V. Revan then introduced Malik to the dark side, and the two old friends Kel fell completely under its thrall. In 3960, following the end of the counteroffensive, Mitra Surik, acting on Revan's orders, unleashed the, man, the mass shadow generator at Malachor V, killing tens of thousands and breaking the planet in the process. But as we all know, Revan didn't just target his Mandalorian enemies at Malachor V, but those within the Republic and Jedi Order as well. Malachor V was the end of the Mandalorian Wars, and the Republic expected its big heroes to help rebuild. Instead, Revan and Malak took what remained of the Republic fleet to the unknown regions in search of a Sith presence revealed by Mandalore the Ultimate. After having their minds dominated by the extremely powerful Sith Emperor, Revan and Malak returned to the known galaxy in search of the Starforge. They would use its power to act as a vanguard for the Sith Emperor's impending invasion. Or not. By the time Revan and Malak reached the Starforge, they had broken free of the Sith Emperor's mental control, but were still fully immersed in the dark side. Thus, in 3959, on the Starforge's bridge, Revan and Malak proclaimed a new Sith Empire in the line of Exar Kun and Naga Sadao. Revan took up the Sith title Darth Revan, Darth Revan and became the master, while Malak became Darth Malak, Revan's apprentice. The loyal fleet and soldiers who had followed them since Malachor V pledged fealty to the Sith Empire, which allowed the Dark Lords of the Sith to make war on the Republic. In 3958, the Sith attacked and the Jedi Civil War began in earnest, and the Sith Empire won a series of crushing victories. In 3957, the Sith Empire controlled one-third of explored space and looked to overwhelm the Republic. In that same year, Revan built the assassination droid HK-47 to undertake covert ops. However, the Sith began to encounter difficulties in their war of conquest. First, Revan and Malak began to fight with one another, culminating in the Master removing his apprentice's jaw in a lightsaber duel. Darth Malak lived and acquired his iconic facial prosthesis, but the issue was far from settled. Then, the Republic rebounded and won a few battles with the help of Bastille Shan's use of the rare force ability, Battle Meditation. In, 30, in late 3957, the Republican Jedi cooked up a plan to capture Revan and Malak and end the war early. They knew they couldn't hold out against the Sith onslaught over a prolonged war and devised a trap for the Dark Lords. A small Republic fleet baited the Sith into the trap and a strike team led by Shan boarded Darth Revan's flagship. Eventually, Bastila's remaining team squared off against Revan on the command deck, but Darth Malak used that moment to betray his old friend. Malak almost succeeded in killing his master too, but Revan was saved by Bastila's quick thinking and expert use of the Force. After escaping, Shan took the amnesiac Revan to the Dantooine Jedi Enclave where the Council wiped his mind. Uh, there's actually controversy about whether Revan was really an amnesiac or if the Jedi just wiped an unconscious Sith Lord, mind wiped an unconscious Sith Lord, but we'll discuss that when we get around to the reveal. Regardless, the Jedi Masters gave Revan a new identity as a Republic soldier in hopes that his memories would resurface enough to reveal the source of the Sith's seemingly infinite fleet. The Jedi and Republic were still unaware of the Starforge. 
No one except Shan and the four Dantooine council members knew of Revan's past. Finally, in 3956, Revan was assigned to the Indar Spire with Bastila as commander, and the ship was pulled out of hyperspace by Darth Malak's Interdictor-class flagship, the Leviathan. At long last, that catches us up on everything Revan. And we have an almost canon alert. Revan was nearly made canon during a 2011 Season 3 story arc of The Clone Wars. The idea went so far that the scene was created and animatics and concept art for Revan was created. If it had been included, it would now be canon because everything from the Clone Wars animated series was carried over in Disney's 2014 lore wipe. While this seems awesome and the concept art looks cool as hell, it was a good idea to scrap the whole thing. During the Mortis arc, Revan and Darth Bane were supposed to appear as dark side apparitions to the force wielder who, who embodied the dark side on Mortis, the sun. In the now-deleted scene, the spirits of Darth Revan and Darth Bane would give the sun guidance for turning the entire galaxy to the dark side. Darth Bane was later canonized by a season 6 Clone Wars episode, Sacrifice, but with a completely different character model than the one that was to be used for the Mortis arc. The scrapped model did resemble Bane's expanded universe look, with orbalisks covering his body and whatnot, but that's neither here nor there. In the end, Revan's scene was pulled because, as you can probably imagine, it would cause massive continuity issues since it implied that Revan died under the thrall of the dark side and the dark side ending of Knights of the Old Republic as well. Conversely, it might imply that light side ending of Knights of the Old Republic, but that Revan's spirit was somehow split between light and dark after his physical body perished. That's just silly. It's not like Revan's spirit could be split within the Force and the two could somehow meet and fight it out, right? Except they uh, do that in the Old Republic MMO. Well, you know, good to know. In the end, the scene was opposed by director Dave Filoni and was eventually pulled at the request of George Lucas for the reasons we mentioned and because it caused problems with his view of the Force. While Revan still hasn't been made canon, his legacy has made a very real impact on new Star Wars content. The most obvious example would be Kylo Ren's mask. While it's never been confirmed that Ren's helmet design took purposeful cues from Revan's iconic mask, it seems likely given the character's standing in the EU. And the two masks really do look a lot alike. Uh, Additionally, Revan's teachings on the dark side are uh, mirrored by Lord Momin, an ancient Sith Lord who battled Darth Vader after helping him create the castle on Mustafar. Momin's spirit lived on in a mask and was able to inhabit new host bodies when they wore the mask. Uh, Momin's views about fealty to the dark side and not to some silly rule obsessed with the Jedi sound an awful lot like the teachings of Revan. An awful lot. Uh, the full story of Momin is complicated, but we did a spoiler-filled canon alert about him in Episode Eight. Finally, there's a wild theory out there that says that The Last Jedi Visual Dictionary canonized Revan. That theory hinges on use of the phrase, quote, Jedi Crusader Pendant, end quote, to describe a necklace Luke Skywalker occasionally wears. Now, that's a huge stretch and is probably not an intended reference, but the term Jedi Crusader was only used in the EU to refer to the to the revanchist Jedi. So who knows? Regardless of the merits of that theory, Revan will likely become canon in the near future if movies set in the Old Republic release after the end of the Skywalker saga, as legend has it. Awakening on the Endar Spire. 
The first person the mullet-wearing Revan encounters is his bunkmate, Ensign Trask Ulgo. Why doesn't Revan remember his bunkmate? Because they work separate shifts, of course. That's unimportant right now, though. What is important is that Trask is going to be Revan's guide to learning basic gameplay mechanics and providing helpful exposition about crew, the ship, and the Sith. Ulgo will do this as the pair tries to hold the Sith boarding party at bay long enough to give Jedi Knight Bastila Shan time to escape the Endar Spire alive. Trask, like everyone else on the ship except Bastila, believes Revan is a Republic soldier with extensive and advanced training. Departing their bunk, Revan and Trask are met by a number of tiny firefights between chrome-armored Sith troopers and the Republic soldiers trying to hold them off. After an initial fight against a couple of Sith troopers, Revan and Olgo are contacted on their wrist comes by the Endar Spire's second-ranking officer. This is Karth Onasi. The Sith are threatening to overrun our position. We can't hold out long against their firepower. All hands to the bridge. Trask gives the necessary one-line exposition about Karth being a Republic hero with years of military experience, and the duo is off to the bridge. Along the way, we see a brief lightsaber duel between a dark Jedi and one of the Jedi who had accompanied Bastila on the trip. The blue lightsaber-wielding Jedi gets the best of her adversary, but dies seconds later as a, as a nearby power conduit explodes behind her. Damn, they could have used her help. Uh, upon reaching the bridge, Revan and Trask fight a small skirmish with a number of Sith troopers and Dark Jedi. When Bastila and Onassi aren't on the bridge, Olga reasons that they've gone to the escape pods, which would be a good idea for our intrepid heroes, too. Once the Sith realize that Shan fled the Indar Spire in an escape pod bound for Terrace, they will blow the ship out of the sky. The pair then make a dash for the exits, but are delayed by a couple of successful firefights with the Sith before encountering a much bigger problem. While investigating a suspicious noise, Trask opened a door to find a bald guy wearing body armor and what can only be described as hammer pants. Oh yeah, Andy was wielding a double-bladed lightsaber, but really the space Zubas he's wearing are the important thing here. The Dark Jedi moved to engage Revan and the Ensign, but Olgo had other ideas. In order to give Revan time to escape and protect the path to Bastila, Trask Olgo sacrificed himself yelling, quote, Damn, another Dark Jedi. I'll try to hold him off. You get to the escape pods. Go. End quote. With that battle cry, Trask ran to engage the Dark Jedi, sealing the door behind himself to give Revan enough time to escape. Later, Revan would discover that the unnamed man who killed Trask wasn't just some random dark Jedi, but Darth Malak's new Sith apprentice, Darth Bandon. Bandon was the leader of the Sith boarding party. He had come to ensure the capture of Shan for his master, but he was obviously unsuccessful. A lowly ensign, Trask Olgo, locked himself in a room with a Dark Lord of the Sith to, ki- to clear Revan's path to the escape pods. Witness his sacrifice. The bravest soldier in galactic history really did save the Republic. If not for his sacrifice, Revan would have died on the Endar Spire, along with his knowledge of the Starforge. The Jedi had no way to find the superweapon, and the Sith would have eventually overrun the Republic. Character profile, Trask Olgo. Trask was originally born on Alderaan into a noble family, House Olgo, that was warring with House Organa for power at the time. 
At some point before 3956, Olga joined the Navy, attained the rank of ensign, and was assigned to serve as an officer on the Endar Spire. He was assigned to bunk with another Republic soldier who was, in reality, the former Dark Lord of the Sith who suffered amnesia and was given a new personality by the Jedi Order in some utterly ridiculous plan to win the war. And that's what makes Olgo's sacrifice so memorable, the fact that he didn't know Revan's real identity, and he certainly didn't know the act would free Revan to regain his old memories, discover the Starforge, and destroy it. Trask Olgo just thought he was giving a talented Republic soldier the time to escape. Hell, he didn't even know he was about to die at the hands of Darth Bandon. He just thought it was another nameless Dark Jedi. Instead, it was the silliest named Dark Jedi. Later, Revan will encounter a bounty hunter named Selvin, who is responsible for killing all of Olgo's extended family on Terrace under order from House Organa on Alderaan. Despite that, his sacrifice and name would both live on, and Trask eventually became a revered hero and martyr on his homeworld. More than 300 years after his death, Trask would have the posthumous last laugh over Bandon, besides laughing at the name, Darth Bandon. An Alderaanian museum curator acquired the preserved head of Darth Bandon and presented it to one of Olgo's descendants. Well, that's an utterly strange piece of trivia, it's actually pretty tame compared to the rest of the Old Republic MMO. Anyway, there are two other meta notes on Trask Olgo. The first is that a 2006 set of miniature figures was released and the Old Republic commander looks a lot like Trask, even though he never attained that rank. The second is that in Knights of the Old Republic, Trask Olgo was a never nude. Removing his armor in the equipment screen would take him back to his standard Republic jumpsuit appearance, not underwear like every other companion. I mean, that's not like that's not a uh, that's not integral to understanding or enjoying the story of Knights of the Old Republic. But I just think uh, you know it's it's an important uh, you know it's an important thing <laughs> that we bring. I can't even, I can't even finish doing that seriously. Uh, anyway, back aboard the Indar Spire and high above Terrace, Revan is contacted by Carth Onassi. Bastil's escape pod already jettisoned, leaving Revan and Onassi as the only surviving members of the crew left on board. The Sith will realize Shan's escape any moment and blast the Indar Spire into dust, so Revan had better get moving or he'll be left behind. Revan, now running, makes it to the room just outside the escape pods, but it is filled with Sith who are attempting to break through the door. Revan, presumably spurred, spurred on by the memory of Trask Olgo's sacrifice, killed or otherwise incapacitated every Sith in the room and rendezvoused with Karth. The two exchanged pleasantries and boarded the last lifeboat together and jettisoned toward the, the planet below. Seconds later, the Indar Spire gave up the ghost and was obliterated by Sith turbo lasers. Revan and his new buddy Karth land on Terrace in the upper city, but it was not a smooth landing. Karth received only surface wounds, but Revan was injured and knocked out in the crash. Onassi, to his credit, dragged Revan's constantly unconscious ass into an abandoned upper city apartment before the Sith inspection crew arrived at their crashed escape pod. The apartment would serve as their base of operations whenever Revan woke up from the strange dream he was having of a lightsaber duel between a female Jedi and a masked Sith Lord. But why would this regular Republic soldier be having such visions? Location, the profile, the Endar Spire. Look, a ship is a type of location. 
Honestly, for a ship that was only in this game to serve as a tutorial level, the Endar Spire received an impressive amount of background and love. Again, it is our first glimpse of the much-beloved Hammerhead-class cruiser, so it's probably underappreciated still, if anything. The Endar Spire was manufactured by Rendili on Rendili by Rendili Hyperworks at some point before 3956. It then became a Republic transport ship for Jedi Knight Bastila Shan, Lieutenant Carthor Nassi, Ensign Trask Olgo, and of course Revan. Shan's use of the rare Force ability Battle Meditation helped turn the Republic's fortunes in the Jedi Civil War around, and she was eventually given command of the Endar Spire. During its travels, the ship was pulled out of hyperspace and into a trap laid by Darth Malak, who hoped to capture Shan and turn her to the dark side. As we've stated, the ship serves as a tutorial for the game's controls and various other mechanics. It's also the only place in the entire game where your decisions don't matter. You can kill as many Sith as you like without affecting your light-dark alignment or any characters going forward. After all, the only person you really talk to is Trask Olgo, and we all know how that went. Anyway, following the Sith attack, much of the ship's wreckage landed intact on Terrace below. Somehow it survived both the entry into Terrace's atmosphere and Darth Malak's subsequent bombardment of the planet. By the time of the Great Galactic War, more than 300 years later, the mostly intact wreck of the Indar Spire had become a home for pirates. The Republic, intent on recovering the ship's black box-like recordings of the Sith bombardment of Terrace, raided the crash site. They successfully recovered the flight logs, scattered the pirates, and prevented a similar atrocity like the one that befell Terrace. Now, you're probably wondering how a ship that was literally turned into space dust in the escape cutscene managed to end up in a largely intact crash site on Terrace that survived and was used as a functional shelter as late as 3630 BBY. The answer is that we have no idea and it's never been explained, but it's just another wonderful continuity issue to discuss when we get to the Old Republic MMO. Incidentally, the same questions will likely be asked about Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, if they visit the remains of the second Death Star on Endor, like the first trailer implies. In Return of the Jedi, the second Death Star was pretty clearly vaporized in the explosion. However, it appears that some large pieces of debris survived on Endor for more than 30 years. Here's hoping that the explanation is better in The Rise of Skywalker, but at least we know there's precedent for such things, and from the Endar Spire, no less. Canon Alert 21. In what is likely the most well-known Old Republic canonization, the Hammerhead-class cruiser was made canon in the anthology film Rogue One. During the climactic Battle of Scarif, Admiral Radis, leader of the Rebel fleet, called up a Hammerhead corvette, and the Lightbringer responded with a tremendous ramming maneuver. The cruiser's long vertical fin made impact with a Star Destroyer that was previously disabled by a series of Rebel Ion attacks. The Star Destroyer had no recourse as all systems had been knocked offline, and the Lightmaker's thrusters pushed the helpless vessel into another Star Destroyer. The two Imperial Destroyers crashed into one another and then into the Scarif Shield Gate, taking the Planetary Shield down and allowing Jin Erso's team to transmit the stolen plans for the first Death Star. Sadly, it appears the Lightbringer was blown up along with the Shield Gate and the Star Destroyers. However, at least one of the cruisers survived in the Rebel fleet following Scarif. 
Despite being called a hammerhead corvette by Radis in the film and in a few other sources, the ships present at the Battle of Scarif were all newer designs based on the very old hammerhead model. Karelian Engineering Corps developed the Siferna-class cruiser, and they were introduced as transport and military vessels as early as three years BBY, based on their appearance in an episode of Star Wars Rebels. Incidentally, in real life, Sferna is the name of a genus of hammerhead sharks within the Linnaean taxonomy of biological classification. The word Sferna comes from the Greek word for hammer and was classified as early as 1758 by Carl Linnaeus himself. Regardless of the technical designation as Sferna-class cruisers, they'll probably always be called hammerheads and the Lightbringer's presence in Rogue One is almost certainly the most noticeable Old Republic canonization to date. Regardless of what they're called, we stand the best chip in Star Wars history. It's true. There's also a uh, deleted scene from Rogue One that, that kind of shows a bunch of, or like a few hammerheads making it out, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that's canon or not. Some of the deleted scenes are, and some of them aren't, so yeah. Um, all right, point of interest one. Why doesn't this game bear a stronger aesthetic resemblance to Tales of the Jedi? Uh, along with listener suggestions for topics, we're also taking name suggestions for this section. Uh, the question has been asked by a number of people, and we've even referenced it on the show before. So let's try and provide some concrete answers. I mean, honestly, though, how does the galaxy change from Tales of the Jedi's Egyptian-inspired landscapes with concrete buildings and pulse wave blasters to the futuristic, sleek architecture and the earliest versions of the plasma bolt blaster found in Knights of the Old Republic? It should come as no surprise that we have several flimsy in-universe explanations to back up a handful of -of out-of-universe decisions. Let's tackle the IRL decisions first because they were obviously the impetus, not the the in-universe explanations. Oddly enough, the most obvious reason for the aesthetic change is that the developers at BioWare grew up loving The Empire Strikes Back. According to Knights of the Old Republic writer James Olin, quote, My favorite movie is Empire Strikes Back. I think the majority of Star Wars fans' favorite movie is Empire Strikes Back. I wanted Knights of the Old Republic to be as close to the feeling that you got when you watched that movie as possible. End quote. Alex Kane made a similar point during our interview in episode 11 when asked a very similar question about the connections between Tales of the Jedi and Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, honestly, it's probably good to check out to to check that one out and check out Alex's book, um, which is where the James Olin quote comes from. It's a quick read and provides a ton of great quotes and background info on the making of KOTOR. It appears that many of the game's stylistic and story choices can be tied back to the original trilogy of Star Wars movies. Malak appears to have been cre- created as an intentional art cha- archetype of Darth Vader with nods so obvious as to be overt. The Ebon Hawk is caught in the tractor beam of the Leviathan and dragged within uh, before the heroes make a daring escape, but unfortunately have to leave a comrade behind. If that doesn't remind you of the Millennium Falcon being captured in Han, Luke, and Leia's escape in A New Hope, uh, we don't know what to tell you. Then there's also the the big reveal that obviously harkens back to Empire, but we'll come back to that later. 
The other IRL reason might have something to do with the Sunrider naming controversy, a topic we plan to cover on the next episode. Strangely enough, the in-universe explanation for the aesthetic difference also covers another common question. In a bunch of stories about hyperspace laser swords and magic space wizards, why aren't there huge technological breakthroughs that change the galaxy? You think about it, the technology seems mostly stagnant and homogenous, even across vast amounts of time and space. And let me tell you, I have thought about it. To give but a few examples, starships rarely change anything <laughs> from exterior design. Communication methods stay stagnant across centuries. But what does this have to do with aesthetic differences? Well, in order to explain some of the obvious differences between the end of Tales of the Jedi in 3986 and the beginning of Knights of the Old Republic in 3956, a technological great leap forward was added. While the extreme advances in technology might have been evident if you read Tales of the Jedi and then played Knights of the Old Republic, they were fleshed out more in the new essential chronology. A hyperspace beacon, or jump beacon, was a large structure built in space that contained a static hyperspace navigation point. Ships used the beacons to jump to hyperspace and chart paths while en route. Jump beacons were in use as early as 25,100 BBY in the Tion cluster, which means it was a contemporary technology to the original means of hyperspace travel, the Corellia Duros Hyperspace Cannon. That's cannon with two ends, and it's exactly like it sounds. Ships were shot out of a cannon at near light speed. Use of hyperspace beacons eventually spread to all corners of the Republic, but by 4000 BBY, they were made obsolete by the advent of the ship Nava computer, which allowed individual ships to make the jump to hyperspace directly. By the beginning of the Mandalorian Wars in 3976, jump beacons were considered obsolete, though they were retained in difficult to navigate sectors as late as the Imperial Era. Hyperspace terminals, meanwhile, were large space stations that sprang up near jump beacons to provide lodging, food, repairs, and other services to travelers. Some of these stations contained millions of inhabitants because the jump beacons were used for literally thousands of years. Just like hyperspace beacons, these terminals, which look like intergalactic truck stops, fell out of use after the invention of the navicomputer. So now you're asking, how does all that sci-fi nonsense somehow explain the wildly divergent art styles? Essentially, the move from hyperspace beacons to individual ship navicomputers served as a great leap forward for galactic technology. Not unlike the invention of the steam engine or the internet here on Earth. It's imminently reasonable to assume that when jump beacons gave way to hyperdrives, things would change drastically. Not only were the new hyperdrives faster to use, they eliminated the need to stop at beacons and terminals, making trips safer. Beacons could be hacked to send a ship off course, and terminals often became hives of criminal and pirate activity, as evidenced in the first issue of the Soggy of Nomi Sunrider, which occurred in 3999 BBY. Eliminating beacons also drastically altered strategic military planning and caused new migrations, bringing wholesale changes to the galaxy. Explorations of star systems and new hyperspace lanes exploded and new technologies and fashions from the core world started to spread even as far as the outer rim. The decline of pulse wave blaster technology followed widespread adoption of the hyperdrive because plasma bolt blasters were invented at about the same time. 
to minor plot point in Tales of the Jedi Dark Lords of the Sith, which occurred in 3997. The Inner Rim world Onderon still uses, quote, primitive pulse weapons and must change to complete to compete with Republic and Jedi advances in technology. Finally, the changes can be seen in Knights of the Old Republic comics, which of course are undergoing aesthetic changes from retro stone structures to the modern buildings present in Knights of the Old Republic. Now, all of that is a bunch of filler to make up for the fact that Bioware wanted to take everything from the original trilogy, slap some chrome on it, and call it a day. They provided some mildly interesting history, and at least we got one monumental technology shift in the Star Wars galaxy, even if it was nearly 4,000 years before the films. Of course, to totally dismiss the connections between Knights of the Old Republic and Tales of the Jedi would be silly. In particular, parts of the story and equipment feel much closer to Tales than to the original trilogy, and in many ways, the game can be viewed as one of the first commentaries on the prequel trilogy. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic was one of, if not the first, expanded universe story to be developed and told after The Phantom Menace, which gave it the unique opportunity to adapt George Lucas's changing views on the Jedi. Those of you who aren't too old might not remember, but Star Wars was a very different animal before the prequels. Jedi took numerous apprentices, they got married and had children, and the Order was highly decentralized. Masters created training centers on numerous worlds of their choosing, spread far and wide across the galaxy. This was true both of the Jedi in the Old Republic and of Luke Skywalker's New New Jedi Order. In substance, the game bears a striking resemblance to those precursors. Revan and Bastila have fallen in love, lightsaber types are unique and varied, and there's an entire second Jedi Council on Dantooine, and the Jedi are not presented as a monolithic priesthood either. Thus, Knights of the Old Republic did the difficult work of trying to mesh two disparate Jedi orders. The one discussed in the original trilogy, which was fleshed out in the expanded universe from 1977 to 1988 as a decentralized order of warrior monks free to follow the force, unbound by many rules, and the highly stayed rules-based order of galactic cops presented in the prequel trilogy. In many ways, Knights of the Old Republic paved the way for Knights of the Old Republic 2 to perform the most thorough deconstruction of the Jedi in the Star Wars universe that we will likely ever see. But we've got to find Bastila and escape Terrace before we get there. And in hindsight, which we have now, it does seem a missed opportunity that the one thing the prequels got mostly right was an aesthetic that made them feel as though they were set in a time before the original trilogy. They felt like of a mm. different age, which is stunning given that the time span between them is, what, like 30 years at the end there? Um, less. Um, mm-hmm. And so it feels almost a missed opportunity that in their react, rejection of the structure and lore to try and of the prequels, they also rejected the aesthetic. But who am I to complain? We still have a ton of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm not here to... Uh... I'm not here, and I don't think Kelsey is either, to uh, to trash the uh, the prequels or anything like that. I mean, you know that, you know that that is that's territory that's been gone over plenty of times and everything. But um, you know, it's it, it is interesting to see how how it changed because I mean, it was you know 20 years of of work done, most of it in the EU, about 
these care about, you know, these, these Jedi and everything like that. And then the entire, um, the, the entirety of the Star Wars universe completely switches in, I mean, in the Phantom Menace and especially, um, in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith because of how they present the, the order, um, in even more stark contrast. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I, every, every, in my opinion, every story that ever gets released in star Wars, you know, at least since the prequels came out, even w- whether it means to or not is a, um, it is trying to either flesh out the prequels, explain a lot of the things that people weren't really happy with, or that maybe didn't, didn't jibe with everyone, or they're trying to deconstruct them or explain them in some other way. Um, and it's, it's always been interesting to me uh, that Knights of the Old Republic was the first game to be written and come out after, or to be written fully and come out after the prequel trilogy started. And so I just think it's, it's interesting to see how it looks at that, even though, I mean, obviously we're talking about stuff that, that, you know, they, they invented a lot of reasons for the Jedi to change. I mean, that, that's, that's obvious from what we're talking about, but I've always found it very interesting. And it's fascinating. And I'm seeing how Canon is commentary on other Canon um, and how the Lord work together. And we will be very interested what Disney does as it tries to reconcile a canon directly opposed to the aesthetic of another part of canon. Uh, so, sorry. Um, I just, I wanted to say it, it, it's interesting because it, it takes, um, th- there are little, there are little things from, from Knights of the Old Republic that that are extreme nods to the prequels, especially to the Phantom Menace, um, like uh, Revan built HK forty seven, which I mean is a very clear line to Anakin building C three PO, and then of course Anakin doesn't remember or you know forgets about him later or whatever, um, and then Revan obviously became an amnesiac, and, and there are others that we'll discuss, but you know I don't. I don't think that it, it trashed, you know, or it, it, you know, was trying to denigrate the prequels, but it, it was in a very difficult spot of trying to mesh those two things together. And, and I, I thought it, I thought it did. I thought it did a good job. Absolutely. We are here. Um, it's always interesting when you see a creator talk about like a work they made or how it came to be and like, what are the flaws in the original? And they'll have lists of flaws. And then if it's successful, they'll say, would you have changed mm-hmm. this? Like, not at all. Who would have done, how would any of that have come out? We don't know <laughs> yeah. how that goes, right? It's, um, I'm thinking very specifically here of like how Mark Rosewater, the uh, head designer for Magic the Gathering, describes the flaws inherent in the alpha set, but also that it worked. So why would you ever, ever, ever touch it? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. And there's a there's a sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, no, go there's ahead. A uh, at this point, like the way that I view Star Wars is, um, like even even though I don't particularly like the first two prequel movies, and but I, I do love Revenge of the Sith. But that's neither here nor there. Um, it, it's interesting to see like 
the way that they change and the way that, that they've been um, interpreted because, you know, like you said about magic, they can't, you can't go back and change the prequels. They're, they're not going to remake the prequels. That's, that's just silly. And I mean, if they do, I'll eat crow about it, but I seriously doubt that's happening. Um, And so, you know, you're, you're stuck with it. And from, from one perspective, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of older fans maybe don't like the prequels that much, but from another perspective, um, we wouldn't have the resurgence in Star Wars. We wouldn't have the resurgence of Star Wars fandom and the interest that we have in the, in the franchise without the prequels that, and the sequel trilogy, which is the, the one that's going on now, certainly, you know, wouldn't have come up the way it had and, and might not have ever come up if the prequels hadn't been done or they hadn't, you know, gotten at least a good number of fans and made a lot of money. So yeah, it's interesting. Star Wars. There is, there is depth to this thing and we will dive into more of it next time. Um, I'm sure there will be future asides on aesthetics and prequels and the legacy of art and the nature of canon. But for now, I want to thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, the scripted portions, we will explore Terrace by running back and forth aimlessly. <laughs> we will finally meet Karth and Bastila. We will get to the Ebon Hawk, and we will get the heck off Terrace before it's decimated by Darth Malak. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at FOTORPod or email us at FOTORPodcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments. We will answer them on the show. If you have ideas for section heads that could be a little spiced up, we will also uh, listen to those. Um, I am Atherton KB <laughs> on Twitter. And I'm at Lucas Amazing on Twitter. I'm very, very bad at writing section headings. Thank you again for listening, and may the force be with you.